Now, we, we've been in Judges, and we just looked in Judges of a barren woman. But a barren woman really starts the story of Judges completely. Now, it's not in the book of Judges. You've got to back all the way up. But there's another barren woman that starts in all. And there's a not just barren for a few years, but barren for many years. They're an older couple. They've tried for years, no kids. And, and they and their society saw this as like a tree bearing no fruit. So it's a problem. There's something to grieve because they're aching. And this couple is Abraham, also known early on as Abram and Sarai. And God calls Abram in Genesis 12 out of nowhere and says, go this way and I'm going to give you some land and you'll be a great nation and I'm going to bless you to bless the nations. And Abram says, yes. And so God promises a nation from him, which naturally speaking starts with children, right? You got to start somewhere. It usually starts with children, but it doesn't happen immediately. So God tells them this promise, a great nation has come from you. And then years of waiting. I, I told you a few weeks ago about infertility for us for about six, seven years. That's a long waiting, in my opinion. But we're talking now years turn into decades for this couple, and they're waiting. And they have to bank on what God has said, not what they see. They have to hope in his promise that what he said and what he promised to them, he is going to fulfill. They have to put their hope in that because they can't see it. And now, you, let me just tell you a little biology, anatomy and physiology. There's an age which it doesn't happen any longer. Okay, you're welcome. I know none of you knew that. Okay, there's an age where it doesn't happen, and it, they get to that age. They get to that age. Now, I've told you over the summer of some of the, the wisdom path of just from the Proverbs of this. It, God shows us the wisdom of this is where it looks like to go this way. This is the end of this. And sometimes wisdom is just to be able to back up and say, all right, if I, I keep going in this path, this is where it will go. So we talked a lot about wisdom, but let me just talk about another path with this. Another typical, well-worn traveled path that I've seen and it goes something like this suffering travels into despair and then despair travels into cynicism that is a well-traveled well-worn path in the people in your family your extended family our church your neighbors the people in your work well-traveled path path hit some suffering hurt ache pain maybe stuff down it maybe lash out at everyone but then that travels into despair hopelessness and then that so often moves into cynicism one of america's own poets you know paul once says, paul says that in timothy one of your own poets have said one of our own poets have said the age of anxiety has given way to the age of cynicism. It's not a Christian. It's one of our poets. 
The age of anxiety has given way to the age of cynicism. Among my generation, he's my age, he was born a year after me, 1985. Among my generation, cynicism is no longer a bad word. It's being celebrated. And it often is mistaken for intelligence. And then he goes on to say, it is better to be wry and distrustful than to be open and trusting. That, that, that's kind of like a new ethic, a new value. Where not only is it like encouraged, then it's uh, celebrated. Yeah, if you <laughs> why would you trust people? Why would you be open with people? Why would you like think they have any good intentions? You know how jaded the world is, so why aren't you jaded? So I told you, we're going to talk about hope, but First, we're going to talk about reality. In a study on classical cynicism, Luis Navia writes this long thing, but it's after a long study, and this is the summary, okay? A cynical person is this. A cynical person is someone who rejects ethical values and ideals and who reacts skeptically and sarcastically to even the most innocent and well-intentioned human actions. For such a person, most, if not all, human activities are suspect and unworthy of trust, since no one, according to the cynic, ever seeks or pursues anything except for the specific, yet often secret, purpose of benefiting himself. For the cynic, accordingly, hypocrisy and deceitfulness, primitive selfishness and unbounded egotism, and gross materialism and disguised ruthlessness are the hidden characteristics of all human behavior. You still with me? Let me just take a break, stop reading it. Process it, make sense of it, okay. Hence, the cynic does not believe in ideals or lofty aspirations, which are in his mind only linguistic and behavioral games promoted for the purpose of manipulating and duping people, or ways to hide the enormous state of confusion that permeates the average human conscience. I told you the, the couple got older and older, right? Past the age of having children being possible. They're in their 90s and God comes and reaffirms his promise to them. Different times, Abraham falls on his face and laughs. Sarah overhears and what does she do? She laughs, skeptically, cynically, a yeah, right kind of laugh. You can see it in how God responds to it. Now, active cynicism, active cynicism is functionally ath like atheism. It's functional atheism, that there really is no God in your view, and so you're actively cynical about the whole world because really, if you remove God, from your worldview, from your life, from your heart, you remove uh, hope. You really take away hope. And the ultimate end for the active cynic, a.k.a. the functional atheist, a.k.a. can be one of us. Did you hear me? I said functional. I'm not saying what do you intellectually assent to. I'm not saying what do you believe. I'm saying how do you live your life. 
the ultimate end is despair and hopelessness. Or to put it in more real gritty terms, your life is marked by despair and hopelessness. Yeah, the end is that for sure. But the vibe, the ethos, the environment probably of your house, your heart, wherever you take yourself, it's going to be despairing. Now, passive cynicism, that's more subtle, but more common. Well, what's that mean? I mean, uh, it's more of an idle indifference to the world. An idle indifference to the people in the world. Like, that just common phrase, like, ugh, whatever. That. That's passive cynicism. You have to, I have to live in this age, but you don't have to be cynical. You have to live here. If, if that's even remotely true, this, this composer says, like, I grew up this, and I remember growing up a lot of anxiety, and the anxiety now has just turned into cynicism, and now it's not, it's not something we're, like, mad about. It's something we celebrate. If that's even remotely true, that's even remotely true. That's where we live. This is where I grew up. Most of the us that are my age or younger, I've heard this from your own mouth. I've heard it from my own mouth. This skepticism, this cynicism, jadedness. You have to live in this age. You were called to live in this age. Jesus makes it very clear in Acts that you were born and placed in this point in time and this place for a purpose. So if it's remotely true that we live in an age of cynicism, you are called to live in this age of cynicism, but not, that's where it's in, but not of, right? Yeah, you're in it. You don't have to be a cynic, though. You don't have to be. Why? Hope is alive. Hope is alive. That's why. That's a bare knuckle, straight fact to the face. That's why. That's why you don't have to be a cynic. Because hope is alive. It's not dead. You don't have to despair. Hope is breathing, reigning, interceding, supremely ruling. All right. Genesis 15. Let's come back to Abram and Sarah. Actually, let's start there, huh? Genesis 15. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, we didn't read it this morning. I'm sorry. Here we go. Genesis 15. Open up your Bibles if you got one. If you don't have one, there should be one around uh, the chair underneath you. Genesis 15. It's the first book in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, take that one. Take it home with you. If you have courage to come tell us, come tell us you've never read the Bible, we'll help you. Okay, Genesis 15, verse 1. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward, reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I'm childless and the heir of my house is a leaser of Damascus. Or really his, his assistant, someone outside of his house, someone that's, they're working in his household, not, not, 
any of his progeny. Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Eliezer will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. So what does God do? God promises a people. God promises Abram a people. You're going to be a great nation. You're going to have family come from you that's going to be as numerous as the stars. Can you count them? Go outside. Let's count them together. I know my name. You start counting. Let's see how it goes. That's how big your family is going to be. Promises of people. He's already called Abram. He's He's already promised a great nation. He then promises him great people, and then here he credits it, credits, he, uh, credits his belief, his trust as righteousness. In this Lord-vassal relationship, God is ridiculously generous with this vassal, with this common person. Vassals, if you know anything about the feudal system, huh? Not because of history, probably, because some of you guys play World of Warcraft. But the feudal system and suzerain treaties, to give you a little history, um, had lord and vassals. You know, vassals didn't typically own land. They didn't own their own land. The lord owned the land. They worked the land. And they might, if the lord was gracious, generous at all, maybe you could work your whole life and then own the land that you've been working so that maybe you can hand it off to your kids. Maybe. They aren't promised a legacy either. So no land, no legacy, no, no promise of like, you're going to have kids, we're going to take care of your kids, and they can grow up here, and it's going to be fine. What the people of Judges haven't seen, as we've been going through it, is God is the best king. And so then, if, if that's the people of Judges, what, what have we found? Isn't that our temptation? To want another, another king, to not think that he's the best king, to maybe end up finding ourselves as like, I think we're the better king. We know more, we're no better. But God is the best king. He's the generous king. Not only a people, not only a people, but verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I told you go. You didn't know what it's going to be. You started going. This is what it is. I brought you here to give you this land. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? So he's, he's gotten a lot of promises from this generous king from this generous Lord. He's the vassal. People, a land. And he says, how can I know that I'll possess it? God is so gracious. He keeps telling him. He keeps promising. He keeps reassuring him. He keeps (laughs) 
confirming and reaffirming him, all of them, trying to love him, say, yes, 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 this is what I'm going to do. This is, you know why? Do you, one of the reasons why God has to so often reaffirm his promises and say them because we don't believe he's really that good. It's hard to believe. Sorry, I, I was just working. And the God that created me showed up and said, Abram, go. I'm going to take you to a land. <laughs> Do you understand this? The generosity, the lavish of his grace to Abram to like, this is what you get. I'm giving you all this. He asks why, and then God just keeps going with generosity. Here he goes, verse 9. God said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. So all these things, all these animals, so just list off, cut them in half, laid the pieces opposite each, of, uh, opposite each other, but not the birds. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. That's just a added detail. I love that. That doesn't push the story anywhere. That's just telling you the true facts. If you kill something, birds will come. <laughs> As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram. Where does that come from? Who's with him? The Lord. And suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve. And after, they will go out with many possessions. That's Egypt, that's Exodus. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set... Okay, so he... He's asleep. He's put Abram to sleep, and then he's talking to Abram with this dark terror, darkness around him. He's telling him what's going to happen. You're going to live a good old age. You're going to die, but it's going to happen to your family, and then it's going to happen in Egypt. It doesn't say Egypt, but it's going to happen in Egypt, and they're going to be taken out and brought to this land. And then, when the sun had set and it was dark, verse, verse 17, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared, appeared, and passed between the divided animals. So you think about that path. These cut animals split in half, set facing each other, and there's a little bit of space in between. Passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergeshites and Jebusites. What just happened? God cut a covenant with Abram. That's what he did. The phrase to make a covenant in the Bible literally means to cut a covenant. And my favorite definition of a, a covenant, a, a biblical covenant, is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administer bond meaning a covenant that binds people together it's gluing us together it's binding us it's it's 40 ropes wrapped around the two of us so that we're bound together 
what we're talking about. Commits people to another. A bond in blood, meaning this, this binding involves commitments with life and death consequences. We're so bound together. And if we don't do what we say we're going to do, or if we don't fulfill what we promise, there's life and death consequences on the line. Meaning, God doesn't enter into casual, informal relationship with man. Be like, hey, buddy, you want to hang out? Instead, the implications of his bonds extend to the ultimate issues of life and death. That's the relationship, the bond, the connection, the commitment. And so Abram brings the animals for what? To sacrifice. The blood for the bond. The blood shed to bond us together. But the wild thing is God puts Abram to sleep, tells him what he's going to do, then picks up, not really picks up, it appears, so is, is the smoking fire part and the flaming torch and walks through the divided animals. If you don't understand the imagery of what God is doing here, you miss so much of what Jesus has done for you. God walks through the animals signifying if a party of this agreement breaks the agreement, they should suffer the same fate as the animals. Cut in half. Cut off. This is a pledge to life and death. Once the covenant relationship has been entered into, nothing less then the shedding of blood may relieve the curse of the covenant. If the covenant's broken, there's a curse for that broken. And the only way to get rid of that curse is death. That's the contract. I know it's the holidays, and there's like mobile commercials, mobile phone commercials, everything, you know. Some of you guys hate contracts. You know, we're trying to get out of contracts. Complain about the contracts. Don't read the fine line of the contracts. Did you hear the contract God just made with Abram? The stipulation? The stipulation is, if I don't uphold my side of the contract, I will die. I will be cut up. By who? We don't know. Himself, I guess. He's committing himself to die if he does not keep up the covenant. Cut in two, cut asunder, cut off. That's what I'm saying. What I want you to see is the king is generous. He's not only promised the people to an old person who has no kids. He not only promises a land to a guy who deserves no land. This isn't his area. He's a foreign resident. And then he also says, if I don't uphold my side of the bargain, I should die. Kill me. That's how committed I am to this promise. I solemnly swear on my life. So what I'm saying is, 
there's hope because the generous king is a promise keeper. So yeah, yeah, age of anxiety and cynicism, sure. But God, who transcends every age and is generous in every age. So there's, there's hope because he's a generous king who is the promise keeper. All these wild things he said to Abram. His disposition to give good gifts is the opposite of a stingy heart. That's, that's a part of what the, the Bible speaks of, and when we talk about God is good, it includes his generosity, his goodness to give good things. Stephen Charnock, the 17th century Puritan, wrote this. He's too rich. God is too rich to have any cause to any and too good to have any will to envy. Too rich to have any cause to any and too good to have any will to any. Am I reading that wrong? Okay, something's wrong with that. A thousand apologies. Or maybe I'm just not translating Old English right now. But... The point is true. <laughs> He's too rich to, to need anything. That's what the first point is trying to say. He's too rich to need anything. And then also, he's too rich to envy you. To be like, oh, no, I need this from you. I got to have this from you. I don't have it in myself. I got to take it from you. The idea of hope in the Bible is described 146 times in the Old Testament and 108 times in the New Testament. The idea of hope. And then you've got Hebrews trying to make sense of this and, and getting us on the path of what is hope and, and how do we have hope and what is hope in light of skepticism and cynicism and that ugh, whatever kind of indifference. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I'll try to give you a definition. The most common sense biblical hope is a patient, disciplined, confident, waiting for, and expectation of the Lord as our Savior. Do you hear that definition? So let's maybe just to try to we, uh, wean out the word hope out of our lexicon, our vocabulary, as I hope to see you next week. I hope it happens. That's, that's wish. That's I'd like for it. I desire. Hope is something different biblically. Hope is this, this confident, patient, disciplined waiting for an expectation of Jesus as our Savior. That he, he's going to promise, he's going to fulfill his promise. He's actually going to keep his promise and come back. J.I. Packer, he says, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a book of hope. A book of hope. Think about the first promise, Genesis 3.15. It's a word of hope. The woman's seed will crush the serpent's head. It's a word of hope. How does it end? Last words of Jesus. I am coming soon. Revelation 22.20. 20. 
That's a word of hope. The inclusio, the bookend, is a word of hope. This is the promise going to happen. And then he, he has come, the seed has come, stepped on the snake's head, left, raining right now at the right hand of the fire. Then he's going to come and set the world right. Just flourishing and thriving and not cancer riddled and suffering riddled and conflict riddled. The implications of this, of this generous king promising to Abram of the hope that we have because he keeps his promises for us. The implications come from the writer of Hebrews who so often takes the stories, the truth of the Old Testament and then says this is what it is to live now in Christ as a Christian. In Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, dot, dot, dot. What? Bible is telling us is God is faithful even when we're faithless. To, to use one example from the covenant with Abram, Jesus perfectly, perfectly fulfills the promise, the conditions, and the curse of the covenant with Abram. If you look at in Genesis, 7, Genesis 17, the, the promise, the curses and the conditions of the covenant there, Jesus fulfills them all. He's circumcised on the eighth day. He lives a blameless life, fulfilling all of the requirements of the law. He actually loves fully God and others. And then he's cut off. Like Isaiah 53, 8 says, he's forsaken by the Father, cut off, thereby fulfilling the curse. All right, I'm, you're going to sing hallelujah, hallelujah in a little bit because you're going to hear what I'm saying. The one who kept the conditions perfectly takes the curse of breaking the covenant. Did he break the covenant? He did not break the covenant. So do you see what's happening? The one who perfectly fulfilled the conditions of the covenant, who should receive only the blessings of being faithful to the covenant, says, no, I'll be cut off from the people. I'll take the curse of the covenant that I didn't incur, that you incurred, that I incurred. I'll take the curse for you, meaning I will die so you won't. Because the, the curse for breaking this covenant is blood shed. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 not them, me. I will take. So there's hope, friends. There's hope. You can breathe that in because you're not cut off. 
And if you don't know Jesus, you don't have to be cut off. You can know Jesus and be pulled into the family and have the promise keeper as your father. The curse says you broke the covenant, you die, you're cut off. The good news of Jesus says you broke the covenant, Jesus dies, you are God's people and he is your God. The promise fulfilled. Our generous God walks through the cut animals saying and then fulfilling, not only will I die if I break my side of the covenant, I'll die when you break your side of the covenant. Not if, when. How do I know that? Before the world existed, the father planned with the son. Your redemption. So, with that reality, Hebrews keeps going. And verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You hear the full assurance again, that hope, that, that conviction, things not seen. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast, tight, again, bound, hard, think ropes, hold it tight, hold fast to what? The confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That's why I've been saying what I've been saying. The generous king is a promise keeper. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we hold fast the confession. Let's do that. Why? Because Jesus taking the curse for us. Because Jesus fulfilling the covenant. Because Jesus keeps promising and everything he's promised in the past he's fulfilled and anything that he hasn't fulfilled yet you're going to trust he will that hope that assurance he will his track record is a hundred percent some of you guys have posters of other well, i always pick on the guys sorry because i'm a man i don't know how to pick on the ladies in this one so some of you guys have other grown men posters because they shoot 50% in their games. Others of you have baseball cards in their office, like me, of, of guys who bat and get on base one out of four times. Do you hear what I'm saying? Your heroes are batting are successful 50% 50, 50 of the time. God, Jesus, is faithful. His track record is 100%. Everything he's ever promised, he has fulfilled. And if it hasn't come yet, that's where the hope is, he will. I'm going to trust and he's going to. I have confident hope and he will. Lee Strobel, in the case for hope, he writes it like this. Hope is the inextinguishable flicker God ignites in our souls to keep us Believing in the prevailing power of his light. 
even when we are surrounded by utter darkness. So, I want to get very personal quickly here. A big reason for us to break from judges and to walk through Advent is because of Advent, but with this emphasis, this inflection on God being generous, on the king being generous, because I am repenting to you. I have, I'm saying it again, and this is trying to bear fruit with that. I have, I think, talked to you, tried to teach you, uh, instruct you over the past six years on who God is and his attributes, but I have not talked about, and it was wrong, uh, uh, his generosity. One of a few reasons is because when we were first planted, we were self-sufficient. You guys, we gave generously to this mission, and we, we weren't aching. It seemed like this was something this family understood. By and large, the members said, yes, we understand to be a Christian is to, to serve and be in community and, and, and to give to the mission. It's like, I, we got that, but, but it's been six years. And if, you know, Jesus' words about generosity and stewardship were around 25%. And I don't know if that's my expectation or my standard, but I'm, I'm nowhere close. I'm about 0.0025%. And so I want to ask you to forgive me for not talking to you about God's generosity. Not talking about how overflowing and abundant I can tell you the one reason is that. I can tell you another reason is because uh, um, early in church planning, I didn't want to do that. A lot of us have been hurt. A lot of us <laughs> have been hurt by churches. And so for another church and church plant to just be like, hey, come here, and we're doing this, and we're going, hey, give us your money. We kind of did that intentionally up front not to, but now I'm saying, hey, we're here, and we got to talk about this. And so for this month, we're going to talk about how generous the king is and then it's going to have to confront with our own hearts of are we like our king in this way? Meaning, if I haven't been driving this for you, have you? And if not, then let's both turn together and begin to see and reflect, see it in him and then reflect it to him and others, his character of goodness specifically generosity. Because I can't get over the story of Abram a little bit because I can't get over the story of Ryan. And it's really not my story. It's the common denominator is that we're both Aliens, busted, don't have a place, really don't have a people. And God called us. And then God promised us things. And then God did those things. And then he keeps doing those things. I can't get over that we come to him and say, now I'm going to give you a people. You got no kids and you're super old now. I'm still going to give you a people. You don't have any land. I'm going to give you this land. Is it good land? Yes. 
it's flowing with what? Milk and honey. The best. So be generous is, is where we begin to think about because of who he is. But let me just come back to this word. If suffering has led to despair and despair has led to cynicism, then the path is not just to retrace your steps and go backwards. The path is to begin to take your pain, not just to yourself, which then erodes into there's no God, functional atheism, now there's despair. If you will begin to take your pain, your suffering to the Lord, grieve with him, and let him begin to shape your heart as you're with him. Then you can walk down that other well-ridden path that Christians for 2,000 years have been walking. That path of confident hope in Jesus because he's good and he's going to keep his promise whatever he said. So we're just going to keep walking that path. That patient, disciplined, confident waiting for an expectation. So after you breathe it in with me, I'm going to pray it for you. Father, would you give us this hope? Would you lead us in this hope to put our faith confidence in you and your words and your promises to us. And to have confidence and assurance in the evidence, the evidence of your grace in our history, in our own personal history and in church history. for great hope because if you were generous then and you're always the same then you're generous now and so I pray that we would see that you would show us even more right now through your spirit and your word that we would see what a Lord and vassal relationship we have with you what a king generous one you are to us. In Christ's name.